0: Let's pray, shall we? Dear Lord God, thank you. Thank you for um, your eternal word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. And even now, Lord, as we look at this one hymn, would you cause him to be made manifest in our midst? Would you give us eyes to see him in all of his glory? Um, Would you give us hearts to receive him in all of the love that he has for us and the love that you have for us and the love that he brings to us by extending grace to us? So we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, this is part three of four, even though you don't really they, they each stand alone. But I've been looking at Advent hymns each week. So I looked first at "Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending," and then last week I looked at "Hark, a Thrilling Voice is Sounding," a lesser-known Advent carol or hymn. This week we're looking at the great "Come Thou Long Expected Jesus," which is. Um, you might remember it's a it's a hymn written by Charles Wesley, um, so it's one of those short and sweet, deeply um, accurate theologically um, hymns that we sing during Advent season. And we actually, for me, it has a very I've always enjoyed it, and I actually requested that we sing it for my ordination, which was on the first. First Sunday of the Advent. So it has a special meaning for me. And the theology is so incredible and so beautiful. So um, we're going to first listen to a very traditional version of it. And um, this is like how it ought to be done, I guess. That? A tune. Is it? yeah it is a different tune <laughs> than what we sing I know it's I'm not a, a musician so I'm not um, super aware always of when there's different tunes so I apologize for that in advance but um yeah they did they grow to the, to the it's very very classic <laughs> very buttoned up, right? This is <laughs> how it's done. We'll see some more um, renditions of it, two more that are actually uh, that I really enjoy. One that is completely contemporary, and the second is a mix of classical and contemporary. So you'll have to tell me which one is your favorite at the end. Um, but why hymns? Why study hymns? Well, hymns have um, very often theology written into them, and some of them are better than others, which is why. As a clergy team, we labor over which hymns to pick for a Sunday morning. You know, the musicians, the director of music, and Charles, the assistant director of music, they'll choose hymns, but we sign off on them. You know, the preacher is always the last person to say yay or nay to the hymns, and we'll very often rearrange them theologically based on the content of our sermon. Um, And so the theological content of this, obviously, is amazing. Um, There's something, too, about singing this theology. When we say things out loud, for example, when I read scripture alone by myself in the morning, I actually read it out loud because it makes me slow down. I could read through things really fast in my head, but reading it out loud causes me to slow down. It causes it to be reinforced in my mind and in my heart. While well, reading out loud slows us down, singing slows us down even more. And you can really chew on the words and the ideas behind a hymn because you're singing it, and then so that first thing when you sing, it's like you're praying twice. Secondly, the other reason why hymns—I um, don't know about you, but I know the words to so many hymns. I probably know the words to hymns better than I know have memorized scripture, and that's terrible uh, or wonderful. Wonderful that I know them. Terrible that I don't know scripture as well as I know some of these hymns. But there's something about the rhythm and the rhyming. That causes them to stick in our brain how many of us have gotten a song in our head and we thought save me from this song that's singing over and over again in my head I can't even remember which there's one secular Christmas carol that sticks in my head and I can't remember what it is thank goodness because I'm not going to think about it no it is I think it is I know I know know what it is but I'm not going to say it because then it's going to lodge itself in my brain for the next so b- but, so the, they get stuck in our heads. Um, Charles Wesley himself, he was the youngest of the 18 Wesley children, and he clearly had a gift for poetry and for verse, for writing in verse. He wrote over 3,500 full hymns, in addition to several thousand other fragments and scraps of hymns. He would go traveling around England on a horse and visiting different people and preaching in the open air, just like his brother and just like George Whitefield. And he, um, when he would go to visit friends, after several hours on his horse, he would get into the the yard of the house. He'd quickly put the horse, tie the horse up, run into the house yelling, pen and ink, pen and ink, pen and (laughs) ink. Because I don't know about you, but if you drive somewhere, don't you get all these good thoughts? I Actually, don't you know, I get my best ideas when I'm driving on the road and I really am grateful for the dictation App on my fancy phone But so that was his version of the he could not write them down and he his first priority Whenever he got somewhere after a long journey was to write down all of the verses that his brain had been composing While he was on the road then he would greet his friends ask how they were doing and say, let's sing hymn, shall we? Mm-hmm. So those hymns were just ingrained in him, and even their parents. We think that their parents required them to have memorized a hymn every week um, to to just sing on Sundays as a as their part of their. Education as young children. So, um, who would match the, yes. the words to the music. I mean, did he do that too, or I, how, how did that happen? You know, David, I don't know. I wish I knew about that. Wesley doesn't always write. He doesn't write the music very often. Right. But his, I think that he was more the verse composer. And then someone else matched it. Someone else matched it, or he would match it. There's stories too of them, not just him, but other hymn writers during that, you know, Great Awakening, taking, taking popular. Songs, not just like, yeah, exactly. Like Luther taking bar bar song. Bar (laughs) (laughs) A Mighty fortresses, our God, is a bar song. Like, can't you picture yourself with (laughs) the tankers singing it? Well, so the the songs in England as well were also popular songs. There's one story of a preacher who, um, who reappropriated a song. A bunch of people were trying to crash his open air preaching session by singing very loudly this bar brawling song, and so he told them to come back the next day. And he had written new words for that bar brawling song, and he said, "Now you can." And they, it took because they knew the tune, they could sing the song. So, I, I all that to say, I don't know. I know that they did some of that. Um, I do think that Wesley wrote some of his tunes, but again, please don't quote me on that. So, um, in this first chapter or first verse, let's read this verse out loud together. Since reading out loud is good for us, let's read it out loud together. Come, thou long expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us let us find our rest in thee we hear in this first verse an invitation to Jesus an invitation that asks him to come to be with us because we recognize our need for him in um, and, and here you hear about this sense of longing among Um, those of us singing it a longing and there is indeed a longing on earth to see um, the earth be changed we live in between the first and second comings of Jesus we are as Christians an advent people a people waiting and longing for the coming of Jesus longing for his second coming he has come already and we know that he will return again and when he returns all wrongs will be set right And the world will be completely transformed. We see little bits of transformation, but yet we also see all the darkness in the world. Just turn on the news. Um, I have all these theories about the darkness in the world. And um, they're Deborah Layton's pet theories. But when I look around and I see the fallenness of creation, I see it in, um, in cheesy things. I see it in things that I don't think were there in the Garden of Eden. And I first came up with this theory when I was... Very young I have I have a sweet tooth and I love sweets which means that I also need to have a good dentist always mm-hmm. and so as a little girl I was the only one of my um, of the four of us children who needed to see a dentist and have her teeth filled so it was sort of like a daddy-daughter date my dad has bad teeth and I inherited his bad teeth so we go to the dentist together and get our teeth filled well it turned out that um, it wasn't until I was in high school and we moved to Boston that we discovered that I was actually I'm immune to whatever Novocaine is the most normal one to use. Like it doesn't work on me. So all those years I'd been in pain while this kind of they always gave me the novice dentist while the (laughs) novice dentist was drilling my teeth. But one of the ways I got through it was I would just sit there and count. I'd count the lights. I'd count the the instruments in my mouth And I'd come up with these theological theories, so one of my theological theories is that tooth decay is the result of the fall. (laughs) There was no tooth decay in the Garden of Eden. There also no, maybe there weren't any sweets, any, you know, refined sugars. But anyway, tooth decay, look at the natural disasters in the world. All is not right in the world. I also, so tsunamis and tornadoes, I also chalk up blood-sucking insects to being part of the fallenness of creation. Um, So if we're ever in doubt we can look at those things and say no the world is not right There's something wrong with the world Um, And and we see in st. Paul's letter to the Romans that in chapter 8 He's acknowledging this longing in the world within creation itself not just for from human beings but inanimate creation is Longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the return of Jesus Christ so all creation The creation itself is in bondage and so the creation is subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now all creation is groaning and longing for the return of jesus christ and for all creation to be set right totally restored and not only is all creation longing but we ourselves are longing groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies the perfection of our hearts um, that we would no longer be sinful i often think of death death, death death Mm -hmm. I I often think of when I think of death I do think of um, the bright side of death one of the many bright sides of death is that our sin is dead when we die at the end of this earthly life our sin dies with us and we will rise because of our faith in Jesus Christ because of what he's done we will rise from the dead but none of that sin will be brought with us. So if there's something that you're struggling with that you're like, why can't I just get that right? Why won't that part change in me? When, Lord, will you change my heart so that it will be um, transformed into your likeness? Well, we know for sure at the end, and we do also see transformation bit by bit in this life at times. um, On the Lord's timeline, he's in control of it, um, which is sometimes the most frustrating part. So if we were ever wondering is creation perfect no are we perfect no and sometimes you might be able to easily see this lack of perfection or you might be you might be able to acknowledge that it exists when you look at other people and so i've broken it down into three groups of other people when you look at um and in in the in the hymn it's this idea of the gentile um, that the, lo- all genti- the um, desire of every nation. So let's look at this first and I'll go back. Let's read um, verse 2. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Do you see those different spheres and circles of influence? Those spheres and circles within humankind that are waiting for the coming of Jesus that are longing for the salvation that he brings and I would say first it's that um, those others dear desire of every nation for the people of Israel the Gentiles anyone who is not Jewish the Gentiles were not just not right they were enemies. the Gentiles were people who had persecuted them who had enslaved them who had carried them off into exile who had tortured and killed them, who had caused their children to starve while they were besieged in Jerusalem before they were taken into exile. Um, this act, including the Gentiles in the promises of God, is, a very, is, is an enormous stumbling block for the people of Israel. And you see this in Jesus' own ministry. You see it also then in the ministry of the early church. Um, how, could, how could they be included with us in God's promises? Well, um, remember that when you look at people who have wronged you, think in your mind, who is someone that has wronged you? Is it possi- You can look at them and say, all is not right in the world, can't you? It's easy to admit that when you look at someone who's wronged you. You say, all is not right in the world because they shouldn't have done that. They should be better than that. Um, uh, but again, with that, all we can do, we can turn them over to the Lord God and trust that he is, he is, um, he, he is both merciful and he is just. But they are longing. They are longing on some level for transformation. Um, when we also look at us, we, the people of God, you know, the, as Christians, we are in continuity with the first people of God, the Israelites, because we are, it's a new, new people of God um, constituted around faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if you've ever served on the vestry here at the church, you'll know our church is not perfect. You might think it is, and it's really amazing. There's really no other church like this that I've been to and I've been to a lot of churches in my life It is not perfect And when you when you end up serving in that capacity or if you're on staff and you kind of see behind the curtain You realize oh, it's not perfect um, and That part if you're able to recognize that um, if you have seen that and it's been disappointed by that on some level then you experience that longing for transformation. So there's the longing for transformation in inanimate creation, the longing for transformation. We long that our enemies will be transformed. We long too that our own community will be transformed. Then we long too for those closest to us, (laughs) our spouses. Um, If you are ever in doubt about the imperfection of creation, all you have to do is um, look across the breakfast table, right? Um, It's very easy to see the flaws and imperfections in our closest loved ones our nearest and dear ones um, and there's um, there's a great example of this recently someone said to me um, I was at someone's house and they had been hosting and it was um, it, 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 there was something about the way that the hosting was happening and that and the husband looked at me and said this this has been like this for 40 years this is just this is just the way it is and just kind of was twinkling um, it, his wife's imperfections, he knew them, He knew, and they hadn't changed after 40 years. Um, but after 40 years, thank goodness, he could twinkle about it and not rail against it. But he twinkled. He, he knew better than anyone else. We know better than anyone else the imperfections, flaws, and sins of our spouse um, or those nearest and dearest to us. I see it in my family. I've seen it in oh in roommates. Oh, my goodness. I've, that's why I've... Sworn off for me, mm-hmm. um, but so, so when we are, it's easier to acknowledge this. All is not right in the world when we look at other people. Then we have to look inward too. Who am I that I would be right in the world, and all the rest would be not right? It's humbling to remember that. Um, what do other people see in me that I can't even see in myself? What is it that my spouse sees? What is it um, that my church sees? What is it that people that I may have wronged see in me that's not totally right? Um, So we, we have to acknowledge that we ourselves are longing for salvation. We need the salvation that Jesus brings. And that salvation that Jesus brings, the very epicenter of salvation is this longing heart. Every longing heart, this individual heart, is longing for transformation. And that's the epicenter of salvation. From the transformation of the longing heart, our longing hearts, then God outwardly brings transformation in other spheres of our lives, within our families, within our churches, um, within our relationships with others even when they've wronged us, within all of creation itself. um, He um, transforms us that we may be then a blessing. And that's his work. Um, so what is this salvation? Um, we've heard it so many times. Let's say it again. Salvation is from our fears and sins. You hear that in that first verse. Um, Come, thou long expected Jesus, from our fears and sins, release, release us. In um, John chapter eight, Jesus says, um, he says about the truth. He says that um, you will know the truth if you abide in my word and you truly are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free he says that in verse 31 of chapter 8 and then he says he talks about slavery if truth sets you free well what are we enslaved to we as human beings are enslaved to sin but there is hope there's hope because the son will set us free and we will be free indeed and indeed the son has set us free in his first coming we who were once slaves of sin miraculously have become obedient From the heart to the standard of teaching to which um, we were committed we've been set free from sin now we are enslaved to righteousness and what is it that sets us free from sin well in Jesus Christ perfect love has been made manifest to us and it has been offered to us freely grace has been extended to us in him by his cross um, that we now don't have to fear punishment we don't have to fear the consequences of our sins Um, That God has removed the eternal consequence of sin, eternal death, from us. We're no longer in danger of that. And we might experience some consequences of sin in this life. I mean, I I do see, I always use a DUI as an example, because it's really easy. If you get one, it's really a bummer, I'm sure, and you feel really chagrined. But if you were to say, they did this to me, and try to say you're a victim, no one's going to believe you. It, it's not gonna work no one's gonna buy that story everyone's gonna say thank goodness you're off the road um, so that's one of those small examples in this life where we do sometimes experience consequences for our There or a whole host of other ones but the eternal consequences even if you get a DUI or whatever else it might be the eternal consequences are withheld from us we are free we are hidden in God we are safe from those we have no reason to fear anything from him Um, We we have no reason to fear that he will implement justice upon us eternally. Rather, he has implemented grace upon us. His love then casts out our fear. We know in him that we can just rest, um, that he has um, bought us and redeemed us with his own blood. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So we are freed from fears and sins, and we are free to find our rest in Jesus. Because of what he's done for us, coming to him is restful. He brings rest and consolation to our souls. He brings us that stillness. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And also from Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God so um, any questions about that before we start to look at verses 3 and 4? Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's say verse 3. Born thy people to deliver born a child and yet a king born to reign in us forever now thy gracious kingdom bring. What is the kingdom well, I often think on a grade school map, if you ever remember those grade school maps where the colors are always so strange, aren't they? Like one geopolitical nation will be in cantaloupe, if I'm bringing out my interior design or, you know, clothes skills. The other one would be in, like, lavender. Maybe you'd have a cucumber green. You just have all of They're all pastels, that sort of weird bright pastels. That's kind of what I think of when I think of a kingdom. I think of a geopolitical kingdom. I think of a place with boundaries. Like that that are marked out on a map that are guarded in real life where there's a very clear um, boundary and borderline well the kingdom of God what is the kingdom of God there's all sorts of language about it and this very modernist um, liberal theological viewpoint is that we need to bring the kingdom of God we need to bring peace justice truth and love ourselves into the world it's our responsibility As Christians to spread the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is simply wherever the king is wherever Jesus is exalted as King and Lord that is where the kingdom reigns and so we see in this that his reign begins in us and it goes out from us his reign his kingdom is gracious it involves receiving grace from God vertically and offering it horizontally to others um, there's language in the prophets of this kingdom being everlasting being given to one like a son of man I'm gonna breathe right through that sorry um, and the king something about King Jesus is to remember that he is born this everlasting kingdom of his this throne of David's that belongs to him all of these words wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father Prince of Peace, these words that we hear and we associate with Christmas, all of this language about the kingdom of God that is going to be established through his King Jesus, well, the kingdom of God enters in weakness. For to us, a child is born. God himself, who is all-powerful, who is sovereign over all, he deigns to enter into our own weakness to redeem us from it. He is born as a babe in Bethlehem. And by that birth, then he, through his death, will raise us up into glory from the dust into heaven. And we hear this in the final verse. Um, So let's say that last verse together. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. throne. What is it that the kingdom brings? Well, the kingdom, I mentioned the grace, that we receive grace, we offer grace. The kingdom brings righteousness. In Jesus Christ, we are counted righteous by his all-sufficient merit. We are raised up from sin, from death, into life eternal, raised um, to be surrounding the glorious throne of King Jesus eternally. And we see that in the book of Revelation, that um, those who have washed their robes white in the red blood of the Lamb are the ones who sing His praises eternally in the new Jerusalem. The kingdom also brings peace, that same rest. Let the peace of Christ rule, reign in your hearts. Um, That peace rules and reigns in our hearts because Jesus rules and reigns in our hearts. He's taken over um, lordship over us. And there's also this joy joy now this joy he's our coming joy as we long for him and there's joy later as we are raised from the dead i think of this joy and i think of this particular version of the hymn um it's very short and contemporary but um for me it was the epitome it's just so you joy in the longing joy in the expectation joy I think is the best word for happiness because happiness does not allow for suffering joy is joy in the midst of suffering joy is joy in knowing that the one in whom we place our hopes is faithful um, that he will uh, do for us what's best that he will give us maybe not what we think we want but what he knows we need and so I think of this verse um, from psalm 107 let them thank the Lord and this verse by the way within the context of this psalm it's recounted the psalm recounts salvation history for the people of Israel and within it it says let them those who've been redeemed thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things the question for you today We've been saved. We know we're saved. What is it now as we await for Jesus' return, as we await for the glory that is ours one day? What is it that you are waiting and longing for? What is that thing that you are waiting and longing for? And as we listen to this next version, I'll just hold that thing in your hands, and then I'm going to pray for it. What is it? You might need to write it down. I'm a writer. I need to write it down to identify it. But as you hear this song, you can hold it and offer it to the Lord. He knows that you are waiting and longing for whatever it is that you are waiting and longing for as you wait and long for him, our long-expected Jesus. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to say thy people. we are waiting and longing for your second coming even as we are waiting and longing to continue to receive um, joy in the midst of this advent season um, to receive you lord jesus born as the baby in bethlehem died on the cross at calvary rose from the grave and brings us the promise of new life even as we are forgiven and free would you now give us strength courage And joy in our longing hearts as we await for whatever it is that we are asking you for. Whatever it is that we are longing for you to bring to us today. Um, Bless us. Minister to us. In your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.